Well, it's great to be with you uh, this weekend. It's nice that Keith has spread this out over the weekend so I can go home after every session or two. My wife is really happy about that. Uh, I don't really travel too far. The farthest I go is like Massachusetts and then down to West Virginia because I like to be home. And, uh, and so it's great to be local. And I appreciate that. Um, basically, what we're going to do tonight is go for about a 45 minutes or so, and then I'm going to take questions. Uh, throughout this weekend, any question you have related to apologetics or the Christian faith is fair game. So don't feel like you have to limit it to whatever we are covering. I'm glad to answer any question I can. And if I can't answer it, as I'll teach you tomorrow, I'll just say, I don't know. That's a good question. And that's okay to say, but I'll try to find an answer for you if you have that kind of question. Just give you a little introduction. Uh, I was born and raised in Connecticut. I met my wife in high school, so we're both from there. And as Keith mentioned, I was a senior pastor of a small urban church in New London, Connecticut. Any, any naval people here? Sometimes I run across naval people in, the, uh, in churches, and if you're ever assigned to a submarine, then you would be in New London, because right across the river from us is the Naval Nuclear Submarine Base. So I had some naval officers there. I was a pastor there for seven years. Thought I would do that the rest of my life. I had no ambitions to do anything else. And uh, then God began to open up opportunities to teach. And I went overseas to Russia and Ukraine in the late 90s after communism fell to teach pastors that had suffered in the gulag in Siberia and uh, learned a lot then. And then uh, God led me into teaching about 15 years ago. So I'm a New Englander in exile in Pennsylvania for the last 15 years. <laughs> and just this last weekend, my wife and I, now that we have uh, two grown daughters, uh, they're both, uh, the, the younger one got married off this summer. My wife and I flew up to Boston last weekend and spent the whole weekend, went to the Red Sox game on Sunday, uh, just ate nothing but seafood the entire time we we're there. So I'm definitely uh, in exile here in Pennsylvania. I love the smell of low tide. And when I moved my family here from Connecticut, we, the first uh, week we were here, uh, we lived in the Philadelphia area for 11 years. My kids uh, woke up, they said, Dad, what is that smell? They were used to low tide. I said, that's manure. Welcome to Pennsylvania. <laughs> this is what it smells like from now on. No more salt air. <laughs> so here, here's an introduction to my family. Uh, on the far left is my son, Ryan, who's a junior at LBC. He'll actually be with me tomorrow. He and I do dialogues where he's going to play the part of an unbeliever. I have no idea what he's going to say, and I'm going to show you how to handle different objections that come up. What are the kind of things you can say? What, what are some of the tactics you can use in answering unbelievers? So he'll be here tomorrow. Um, next to me, between me and him in the back, is my newest son-in-law. And he married my daughter, who's standing in front of him with the dark hair on the left. And uh, my daughter's 5'10", and my son-in-law is taller than me. So my retirement plan is NBA-quality grandsons. Uh, <laughs> Having been in the ministry, there's no other hope, really, you know. <laughs> so uh, they just got married in, in May, and uh, that daughter, my younger daughter, is an ICU nurse at the University of Virginia Medical Center. And next to her is my mother-in-law, and then my wife is uh, standing in front of me to the left. And then my older daughter, Kate, and her husband, and uh, the love of our lives, our grandson, who's now 16 months old, so he's walking and talking. Uh, he, my son-in-law, uh, the shorter one, just uh, became a pastor up in Clearfield up above State College. So they moved away this summer about a week or two after the wedding of my younger daughter. So both our daughters went different directions, one three hours north, one four hours south. So we're enjoying having our, 
our son at home because he is uh, he's the last one there. So that, that's who we are. And I want to share a little bit of my testimony in relation to apologetics. I was not born into a Christian home. Uh, my dad had grown up in an orphanage. My mom was born into a, a, a large extended Irish and Italian Catholic family. And uh, neither one of my parents knew what they really believed when they uh, when they got married. Uh, and so I was raised in basically an, an unbelieving home for the first seven years of my life. And then my mom, through a series of events, came to Christ through the witness of a woman who had recently gotten saved herself. And uh, when I was nine years old, she brought us to Vacation Bible School, and that's when I trusted Christ as my Savior. I was baptized in the, in the creek behind the church. Uh, Western Connecticut's all woods, so you know we were country rednecks. And I got baptized in the Greek in August. It was probably about 35 degrees, the water. I remember that distinctly. And uh, began to attend Christian school and go to Bible preaching churches. And very quickly learned evangelism, soul winning. I was part of the uh, church SWAT team by the time I was in seventh grade. Soul winning active teens. This was actually before SWAT teams were really well known. So when I tell people that, they wonder if I was in a cult that had their own SWAT team. But... Every Wednesday afternoon, we would go uh, through the streets of West Hartford, Connecticut, very wealthy area, and we would hand out gospel tracts and try to share the gospel with people. But we were only given the kind of training that many people received in that time period, which was geared toward Roman Catholics and unbelieving Protestants who already believed in God, believed in the Bible, believed Jesus died on the cross, simply believed that you had to do good works in order to be saved. So evangelism was pretty simple. You just showed people verses in the Bible that talked about grace. As I went through college and then later seminary and then became a pastor, what I noticed was the world was changing, especially after 9-11. Suddenly the awareness of many people in our nation that, that were not Roman Catholic or liberal Protestants, but may have been skeptics or where I used to live in the Philadelphia area, a lot of Hindus and Buddhists and then Muslims. And we come to realize we live in a world today that's very different than it was 30 years ago when it comes to evangelism. And many people who were excited about winning people to Christ years ago have kind of grown cold in that way because they were trained in one specific way for one particular target audience that in some places simply doesn't exist anymore. And I was taught how to give the gospel burp. You know what the gospel burp is? It's when you confront someone or corner them and you say, excuse me, sir, do you know for sure if you die today, you go to heaven? Can I tell you that God loves you? Will you fall into sin? Jesus died on the cross. If you just put your faith in him, you can be saved. Would you like to go to heaven? <laughs> Why is that the gospel verb? It's because you feel good afterward and they're offended, right? <laughs> and for many, many years, that was the only way I knew how to share the gospel. You monologue as quickly as you can before they cut you off. And also back in those days, if you did not lead that person to Christ right then and there, it was a failure. You've got to work on your technique. And we used to read books on how to firmly put your hand around their shoulder if you're sitting down with them and open the Bible. Make sure you're, you have a breath mint and you know, point convincingly to the verse in the Bible. It, it was this big focus on technique with really no help at all in engaging that person effectively. And as a result, since this is really the, the main way of... Uh, evangelism has been done for the last 50 years. What I've noticed over the last 20 is I've traveled to, uh, to a lot of churches speaking or visiting churches, that many churches that used to have a, a serious emphasis on evangelism, uh, it's completely gone. 
In the churches I was growing up in, uh, we used to go knock on doors every Wednesday night or Thursday night, and people would gather. And, and that was, that was uh, useful in those days. I don't think it's the best way to do evangelism now. I know when someone knocks on my door unexpected, I check to see where the shotgun is, because you never know in this world, right? Uh, but so many people that were trained in that evangelism style over the years, I think, have lost their fire for winning people to Christ and, and sharing their faith because it doesn't work, right? Or it's too uncomfortable, or people are offended if you try to share your faith. And as a result, then, many churches have just dropped evangelism altogether, or they have gone to this come-and-see type of evangelism. Or we're going to have a big event at the church. Let's try to get our unsaved neighbors and friends and coworkers to come to our church property and then maybe the, the really uber extroverts among us will witness to them uh, and they'll get saved. And I don't think there's anything wrong with come and see events. I think that's, that's a normal part of evangelism. But in my experience, many churches, that's all that's left of their evangelism efforts. And that the average Christian now is fearful of engaging someone with the gospel because they don't know how to answer objections. They wonder, what will I say if they say, hey, the Bible has mistakes. How can you believe that? Or how can you believe someone rose from the dead? How can you put your faith in a 2,000-year-old book? What about the problem of evil and suffering? Are you saying that your religion is the only one that's right? Does that mean that most other people are going to hell? If you've ever tried to share your faith and heard something like this, it can be very intimidating. And as a result, then many people say, well, I'm just going to wait for that person to come up to me and say, please tell me how to be saved. I just, I just, just tell me what to say. And uh, I don't know about you, but that doesn't happen to me ever. <laughs> Unless someone has been preparing their hearts ahead of time. So what we want to talk about tonight is helping every believer become confident. As we look at 1 Peter chapter 3, I want you to see that God calls every single one of us to be prepared to give an answer. And if we would begin to take a hold of this and realize God has given us the resources we need to know these things, it would create, I think, confidence and excitement in us. So take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in verse 13. Peter is writing to Christians who've been persecuted. And let me just make a few comments, too. I have a book table back there. Full disclosure, you can buy any one of those books on Amazon for the same price. So there, there's no great deal. I buy them at a discount. I discount them as much as I can, still paying for shipping. But most of those you can buy them on Amazon. But if you're the kind of person like me that likes to walk away with something in their hand, maybe to put on your nightstand so for the next few months it will haunt you, read me, read me. Um, I don't have cash uh, tonight, but tomorrow morning I'll have cash, but I have a credit card reader. And if, if any of those can be a help, I'd be glad to, to sell those to you. 1 Peter chapter 3 then, beginning in verse 13, Peter says, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Now he's writing to persecuted Christians, so there are people out there to harm them. Many of these people have been driven from their, uh, from their homes because of the, the persecution in the Roman Empire at this time. But ultimately, Peter's saying, ultimately no one can harm you. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And here's the verse we want to focus on. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, 
having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So in this passage, notice we are told that it's written to every Christian. It's not just to pastors or professors. Every one of us is to be preparing ourselves to give an answer when people challenge our belief system. And I think that this is the number one thing missing in the church today in the West. Uh, Believers in other parts of the world, especially persecuted parts of the world, they seem to be prepared because they have to face that question quite a bit. But I think what would revive the church in America would be if every single one of us said, I'm going to work hard to be prepared so that I can share my faith with confidence. I can approach people and, and, and ask the t- type of questions we're going to learn about tomorrow morning, challenge their unbelief, share the good news of Jesus. What would happen at Keystone Church if every member in their own sphere of work, friendships, neighborhood, if they would begin to confidently share their faith? What would happen is seeds of the gospel would be planted and they would begin to grow and you would begin to see people saved. You would begin to have church members say, hey, I brought my neighbor with me today. She trusted Christ as her savior this week. I've got my coworker here with me today at church because we've been talking about uh, God for a long time and, and God brought this difficult thing into his life and he realized that his bigger problem is his relationship with God. What would happen if every person in this church was actively doing that and on a regular basis souls were coming to Christ it would turn this church upside down and I think that's what Peter intends and I think that's what this passage intends notice in the text itself it says this always being prepared to make a defense or maybe your translation says give an answer that is the Greek word apologetic so people see you know where's apologetics in the Bible it's right there that's a Greek word apologetic You also see it twice in Philippians 1. Paul talks about pray for his defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then toward the end of the book of Acts, every time Paul is on trial and he stands before a king or a ruler and he uses the word defense, that's the same word. And we'll see in just a moment what that means. So let's go ahead and start filling out the blanks here. Notice, first of all, apologetics as a definition is the art of persuasion. The art of persuasion, the discipline which considers ways to commend, that is, speak well of, describe in a compelling way, and defend the living God to those without faith. Do you know that we evangelize all the time? We find a product that we really like. Costco just started carrying my favorite cookies. Have you ever flown on a plane that give you these two little, kind of a crunchy little cinnamon cookies called Biscoffs? Have you ever had those? And the only thing you can think of as you eat them is, why don't they give us more in the package? And now Costco carries that. So I was telling my class about that this week, and they're like, Dr. Farnham, bring it in. So I brought them in, and and they're like, oh, these are so good. And and one disillusioned student said, these are your favorite cookies? It's like Teddy Grahams, and it's ruined the cookie for me (laughs) since then. I said, it's nothing like Teddy Grahams. But when we find something we like, we become an evangelist for it, don't we? We tell people about it. Oh, you got to try this product. you got to visit this place. It was so much fun. The problem is we have perhaps lost our love for Christ, our, our appreciation for the glory and the beauty of the Christian faith, for what God's done in our lives. And as a result, we kind of keep it to ourselves. Oh, we're thankful that we're saved. We're thankful that God has redeemed us and given us eternal life. But it sounds too odd and weird to share that with anyone else. 
And hopefully over the course of this weekend, you will be encouraged to do that, just that, in a certain way that will uh, become very natural as you deal with unbelievers. Here's another point on apologetics. It's a natural part of evangelism in which objections to the gospel are overcome by means of reason and persuasion. I don't think you can do evangelism anymore unless you are prepared to give answers. Because as soon as someone raises an objection, if you have no preparation to give an answer to them, then the conversation's over. And that's why Peter says we need to be preparing ourselves so that someone asks us that question. How do I know God even exists? That we have an answer ready to go. Because what I've found is among unbelievers that I encounter, their, their, their unbelief is about an inch deep. And they believe, if you ask them their opinion on anything, abortion, homosexuality, what's wrong with this world, politics, um, you know, does God exist? Most people have thought a little bit about all those things. But as soon as you begin to challenge them or answer back and dig down beneath that one inch layer of thought, there's usually nothing. I don't know why I believe it. I just do. Or I learned that in high school or college or I read a book or I saw someone on TV. But you begin to press back a little bit, press a little bit further with them. And most of the time, people don't have any good reason for the things they believe. My favorite definition is this. Apologetics is merely premeditated evangelism. Premeditated evangelism. That is, I think ahead of what kind of questions might I be asked. And I prepare answers. And really, apologetics is a legal term in the Greek in the New Testament. It essentially means when someone has been falsely accused. Let's say uh, Pastor Keith has been falsely accused of robbing banks in the Paradise area. Okay, when he goes to court, he's going to hope that his defense attorney says something more than, yeah, but he's a really nice guy, Your Honor. You know, if you knew him, you would know that he would never do this. He's hoping his defense attorney has facts, right? Evidence. No, Keith couldn't have robbed the bank on Tuesday because he was with a, a crowd of people at church or he was camping in North Carolina. You hope that evidence would be presented that would exonerate you. And what Peter is calling us to do then is when people raise objections to the Christian faith, to have good reasons to say, no, here's why I believe in the resurrection. Here's why I believe Christ is unique and that other religions are deceived. Here's why I believe that if you don't believe in God, evil and suffering has no meaning whatsoever and you shouldn't be upset about it. And we're going to learn over the course of the weekend some things to say, responses to give that will force that unbeliever into really considering what they are saying in their unbelief. So notice, let's move to the starting point. The starting point of apologetics is a settled assurance. A settled assurance that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life for every person. In 1 Peter 3, he starts off in verse 15, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, I've got to know for sure as a Christian that I don't have any doubts myself. And if you do have doubts, then hopefully this will help you this weekend also. Uh, when I became a pastor, we moved into the parsonage in Connecticut, and I found out that my next-door neighbor was one of the leading experts in the world on the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. And my first thought was, oh, I better not witness him. I don't know anything about that. And I was really intimidated, and that is what uh, kind of spurred me on to pursue more education, because I wanted to know, can, 
can the Christian faith stand up to any challenge that's leveled against it? So while I was a pastor, I went, to, went back to school and did a, a research degree in New Testament, learning how the New Testament came about. I spent a, a semester at Harvard University studying the text, the original text of the New Testament, all the early manuscripts. And my teacher was an atheist, a world-renowned expert on the New Testament, who was an atheist. Studied the Bible his whole life. I didn't know he was an atheist at the time. I said, uh, I said, Dr. Epp, have you ever taught or preached in your church? You know, you, you know all, you know the Bible almost by heart, the New Testament. You, no, no, never done that. I was like, wow, that's really surprising. And then a couple years later, I met a New Testament scholar. I said, oh, he's an atheist. He just pretends to go to church so that you know people still think he's respectable. Uh, but I pursued that, and I, what I discovered was, even though my professor was an atheist, very clearly in the in the class it became obvious that the New Testament text was so reliable, it could not be doubted. A couple of years later, when I was doing my doctoral work at Westminster, I spent a year at Villanova studying German philosophy. I thought, I want to know, does philosophy have challenges to the Christian faith that can't be answered? And I spent a whole year there and walked away so disillusioned, saying, this is the best philosophy has? People object to Christianity because of philosophy? It was weak. I was an older student at the time in my uh, late late 30s, early 40s. And so I was in these classes with uh, bright young doctoral students in their late 20s. And after a semester and a half, they, we were all sitting around before class. And I, I asked them, I said, can I ask all of you a question? You're all in doctoral program here to get your PhD in philosophy. Yep. I said, uh, do you guys ever talk about truth? Because in a semester and a half, we had never once broached the subject of what is true. And they said, oh, no, man, we don't really care about that. I said, then why are you studying philosophy? And their brightest student that everyone looked up to, this is his, his answer. He said, we're trying to finish our degrees so we can get a cushy job in a university somewhere because philosophy professors live really well. You know, you drink fine wine, go to jazz festivals, and people think you're really smart. And because, he honestly said this, chicks dig philosophy professors. <laughs> I'm like, you guys are supposed to be the brightest and the best? And it helped me realize philosophy has no challenges against the Christian faith that can't be answered. Uh, I have some friends who are scientists. One friend who has a PhD in chemical engineering, a PhD in New Testament. He's the most dedicated believer. He said, Mark, science has nothing to challenge a Christian faith on. And, and looking back, I realized in every church I had gone to growing up, we had all kinds of scientists in the church who were committed Christians that didn't find any problems between science and Christian faith. And so Peter here is saying that it's got to start with our own hearts where we pursue a study, we come to firm conviction that yes, I believe that Christianity is true. I believe Jesus is the answer for every person. And in my own personal search, I have found that there is no legitimate challenge raised against the Christian faith for which there are not many good answers. The problem is most of the people you encounter have never heard them, and, and many Christians have never heard them either, but they are there for the taking. What does that mean then? Well, Jesus said, first of all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we shouldn't be surprised that there are good answers for the objections that are raised. What does that mean then? It means that no other belief system reconciles a person to God. I've got, to, I've got to settle in my heart that every person I meet needs Jesus more than he needs anything else. And that's the third point here. No other object of worship is real and true. 
over and over again in Isaiah 45 and 1 Corinthians 10. We're told that idols are nothing. These false gods are nothing. There's only one God. And what people need more than anything else is the life that Jesus gives. Have you ever met someone that makes you kind of doubt that? Maybe they're a really happy unbeliever. We used to call them happy pagans. No desire for God, no sense of missing anything in life. In fact, um, on Sunday night when I talk to the teens, we're going to talk about doubt and confidence. What often causes teens to doubt is when they meet unbelievers that are not the way they've been described. They meet happy atheists. They meet people who worship other religions that are nicer than the Christians they know. Uh, each of my own kids, when they went through their teen years at different times, came to me and said, Dad, how do we know we're right? Uh, one of my kids really had a struggle with Christian friends that were cruel and, and vindictive and critical. And uh, that child got a job uh, where, where the rest of my kids worked in a, in a dining hall at a uh, retirement center. And that child came home and said, Dad, these unsaved kids that I work with are so much nicer than the Christian kids I work with. How can it be true? And there was a lot of wrestling about the faith. But it's a realization that I can't base my Christianity on how other Christians live. I can't base my faith on the failures of those who fail to live up to what God has given. This is a t-shirt I came across. It says, theology is simply that part of religion that requires brains. And it's true that one of the best ways to become an effective witness, effective apologist or evangelist is to know the scriptures and sound doctrine. One of the problems with some approaches to apologetics is you would start to think, listening to some people, that if you don't have a master's degree in philosophy, you can't really engage unbelievers. Or if you don't have a doctorate in some field of science, you can't really engage people. That's not true. It helps to know a little bit about those things, but I am virtually ignorant about science, much to my shame. I think I forgot everything I ever learned in, in school about science, but that's really not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to refute. The average person you meet doesn't know that much more about science than perhaps you and I do. What really matters, though, is that we know the scriptures. That's where the power of God lies. And we know sound doctrine. We know what we believe. Notice, secondly, then, confidence comes from preparation. You might say, Mark, I really want to witness the people. And I think of my neighbor or my coworker or, or friends that I have. I really want to witness, but I, I have no confidence that I can do that. And that's why Peter says we've got to be preparing. Now, I love camping, and I've learned through hard lessons that if you do not prepare ahead of time and you just throw some things in the truck and go, uh, you will find, as I have at different times, that I did not bring a flashlight. That's going to be a real problem once the sun goes down. Uh, or did not bring uh, water, did not bring food or a way to start a fire. If you're going to camp, like many other activities, you've got to be prepared. I don't know how organized you are, but I learned how to camp not from, not from growing up and doing it, because we we'd camp and then we'd lead everything outside all winter long. It would rust, you know, fishing rods and lanterns and all that. And then my dad would say, let's go camping. And then we'd start hunting around for all this stuff, which was now broken and ruined. And uh, so we could never go camping when we wanted to. And when I became an adult, I watched people who would put everything in bins. And uh, everything was stored properly. And when it came time to camping, they'd just throw their five or six bins in the car and they'd go. And the truth is, we're never going to become comfortable sharing the gospel until we start putting effort into it. 
And unfortunately, that sometimes is our biggest obstacle. We don't have time to prepare. Who, who has time to read a book anymore or watch a video? And yet we do, don't we? We make time for the things that we consider important. So what does it mean to invest time? It means to invest time, effort, and money to learn answers. I think every Christian ought to have a growing library in their home of books on how to answer the faith. We invest in other things, don't we? You know, if you're a Precious Moments figurine collector, you've got the next three or four you're going to buy all set in your mind, maybe bookmarked online. The truth is we spend our money and our time. We make effort for the things that are important. And Peter's saying every Christian needs to be making this a point. Because here's the truth, folks. Even though the world has gotten worse, and I believe it has, I think the opportunities are never greater. The darker the world gets, the more the light of Christ shines. Uh, one of the books that I've run out of um, is a book that I typically have. It's a testimony by a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, she was a lesbian feminist English professor at Syracuse University about 10, 12 years ago. And uh, she was a leader in the LGBT community and feminist circles, was an activist. And she was doing a research project on conservative Christians and their responses to all these things. And she published some articles in the paper. I think she was at, yeah, Syracuse, New York. And she used to get responses. And she said she had two, um, two piles of mail, love mail and hate mail. So love mail from all the people in her LGBT community, hate mail from Christians in the area. She said she had one letter, though. She couldn't, couldn't figure out which pile to put it in. It was from a Presbyterian pastor in the town who wrote to her and said, I read your articles. I'm so sorry for, you know, the way you've been treated. But um, I want to tell you that, that you need Jesus and Jesus loves you and wants to save you. And, and would you come to, to our house for dinner with my wife and I? And she was all torn up. She didn't know what to do with the letter. She threw it in the trash a couple of times, pulled it back out. One time someone took the trash out and she chased them down the hall to get it back out. And she asked her advisor, what should I do? And the, the advisor said, Go visit them. It'll make for great, you know, great writing in, in the next article. And so she went, and over the course of a year, she kept going back to this pastor's house with him and his wife, just sharing the love of Jesus. She said, she said, I don't even think they talked about Jesus hardly at all. They just loved on me and showed kindness and showed an interest in my life. And, and soon Jesus began to creep into the conversation. And after about a year, she became a believer. It took her about another year or two, she said, to extract and reprogram her mind from her unbelief and her, and her lifestyle in order to um, begin to think like a Christ follower. So it took me years to let God change those things. Today she's married to a Presbyterian pastor, lives in Virginia. I was in a church in West Virginia a couple weeks ago, and a guy came up to me. He said, I know her personally. He said, I was on the school board where her kids went. She's an articulate, devout Christian who has a wonderful testimony, but she's bold. He said she is not afraid to share her testimony. See, sometimes we lack confidence in the gospel. We think, oh, God could never save my neighbors. God could never save my coworkers. But we have to learn to be patient, to prepare ourselves, and trust the fact that the gospel is still powerful. We're getting ready to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And all started with a Roman Catholic monk, Martin Luther, 
who uh, hated God because as he read the Bible and, and saw that God demanded righteousness that he couldn't live up to and he tried so hard, just put himself through great tortures trying to please God until one day he realized it's God's righteousness given to us and he became a believer. And it started the whole Protestant Reformation. So when you think of someone that you think, oh, they'll never get saved, it's because we have lost confidence in the gospel. We need to have a mindset of preparedness to speak the truth. Have you ever missed an opportunity and you kick yourself afterward? This still happens to me. I hate it. Like, come on, Mark, you're an apologist for crying out loud. Be ready. Um, about seven years ago, well, about 12 years ago, I was diagnosed with end-stage renal disease. And I was a relatively healthy person and went for a cholesterol check. That'll teach you. Uh, <laughs> And the doctor came back and said, you have something seriously wrong with your kidneys. And at first I thought, no, it's got to be a mistake. I feel fine, no symptoms. Well, I hadn't been paying attention to my blood pressure. I should have been, but I was in my late 30s. And who pays attention to that? You know, 50 is a long ways away. Um, and they held me off for a few years the medication. But in 2010, I had a kidney transplant. And uh, the day after my transplant, they sent a physical therapist to come get me up and help me to walk in the hospital. And uh, this girl was about four foot 11. And she said, Mr. Farnham, I'm, I'm here to help you walk. And I laughed. I said, if I fall on you, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and she said, I'm very good at what I do. And she was. And so she took me out to the, to the stairway. I think we were on the fourth level at University of Pennsylvania. And I said, ah, I bet you my wife paid this woman. She's going to push me down the stairs, <laughs> collect the insurance money. But she said, no, you got to learn to climb steps because I have a big incision here, just for people always ask. They don't take out your old kidneys. They just drop a new one. You have a natural pocket on either side of your hip here. So I have a, I have a third kidney. And my brother-in-law, who donated his kidney to me, has one because the kidneys are a redundant function in your body. You can survive with one just as well as with two. So I have this big incision here, and it's very sore. And she said, uh, when you get home, you're going to have to climb the stairs. So you've got to use your, your left foot to go up first on the stair. And uh, so think of good foot, bad foot. Left foot goes first. Just like good people go to heaven, bad people don't. It was right there. It was right there, the opportunity to say, no, actually, it's the other way around. Only people who understand that they're bad can go to heaven. If you think you're good, you, there's no way you can be saved. And I missed the opportunity. And, and, you know, the truth is that when you work at this, you're still going to blow it sometimes. You're still going to miss opportunities. But our effort ought to be, our prayers ought to be, Lord, help me to be ready when an opportunity arises. When I get stuck sitting in a doctor's office waiting room longer than I thought. Or when someone asks a question like, man, there's so many bad things in the world. How, how can there be a God? Or what's going on in the world? What's wrong with this world? To be ready to say, I have an answer. And that's a hard thing to do is be prepared. Peter also says being ready to give a defense means having good reasons for why you believe what you believe. We need to have good reasons. We should not just be Christians because, well, I grew up that way, or it's just because I believe it. There are good reasons. Uh, one of the things I often emphasize with young people who are struggling with their faith is to compare uh, other world religions with the Christian faith. You know, in Buddhism and Hinduism, no one knows how they got started. There's all these legends, but no one really believes they happened because they're not based on historical events. The Christian faith, on the other hand, is based entirely on verifiable Christian, uh, verifiable historical events. 
that in the first century in Palestine, there was a Jew named Jesus who gathered a group of followers around him and was persecuted by the Romans, was crucified, and three days later, the, the, uh, the tomb was empty. Do you know there's an, uh, a well-known uh, critic, an atheist named Bart Ehrman, who is one of the world's leading critics of the Bible that says those facts that I just mentioned are without dispute. No historian in the world doubts those things. That Jesus lived in the first century, he gathered followers around him, uh, preached good news about himself, was crucified by the Romans, and three days later the tomb was empty. He said no historian in the world doubts those things. Have you ever thought about that? We as Christians have a faith rooted in historical events that can be verified. And yet most other world religions are not based on history at all. So we have good reasons to believe the things that we believe. Another thing about the Bible we're going to learn tomorrow night is the Bible is unique in all sacred writings of other world religions. It's nothing like and did not come from anything like most of the other world religions. So we need to remember this is God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I'm pretty sure this is photoshopped. <laughs> um, but sometimes as Christians, we can feel like zebras among lions, right? Or even wildebeest, they're more pitiful when the lions come around. We can feel like that, and yet God has given us his authority. God has given us not a spirit of fear, but of power. So what does that mean then? Fourthly, I'm sorry, thirdly, we're told in this passage that when we do this, when we defend our faith, we share the gospel, we need to do it a certain way. We need to treat the unbeliever with love and dignity. That is, God has not called us to hostility, antagonism. You may experience that. The truth is, you, you, may have, you may know what it's like to encounter an unbeliever who's like all over you for being a Christian. When we first moved here, uh, my wife works at the hospital downtown in Lancaster. God put her in a, in a working group with several bright, young, agnostic women who almost daily would come by her desk and just pummel away with objection after objection. I can't believe you're a Christian. What about all the evil and suffering in the world? What about these people who claim to be Christians that do these terrible things? And my wife's not an apologist. So she would do her best. She'd come home. We'd talk about it. She'd go back. And over the period of a couple years, these girls became less and less hostile. We became friends with, with one of them and her husband. And when something bad happens in their life, even though they've all moved away now, they no longer work with her, guess who they call? My wife. Still not believers, but their whole demeanor toward Christianity has changed. And the truth is we need to learn not to respond with hostility when we experience that or antagonism to, to do like Jesus. What, what, did he, what does he do when they're nailing him to the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He did not revile them. He did not curse them. And in doing that, and Peter talks about that here and also 1 Peter 2.15, by doing well, we might put to silence the foolishness of ignorant people. So what does that mean then? We don't start arrogant confrontations. Some of you might say, well, Mark, I really want to reach people, but I, I hate confrontations. Well, good, apologetics is for you then. Because it's not about confronting people. I used to teach this class at a seminary in, in Philadelphia area. And one time we had a visiting student who was not part of our normal student body. And he only wanted to take apologetics. And uh, he came in told us that, you know, he had memorized much of the Quran because most of his coworkers were Muslim. And he loved to study it and then challenge them and catch them in a contradiction and put them to shame. 
And I said, well, that's not our approach here. We're trying to win people to Christ, not win arguments. And I was sharing about enduring hostility at a certain point in sharing the gospel with someone. And he, his hand shot up. He said, how do you not just punch that guy right in the face? I said, well, that's not the goal of apologetics. It's to win that person, not to start arrogant confrontations. It's not to win an argument. I said, I don't like to argue. Good, then apologetics is for you. Now, we use the term argument, but we're not talking about being argumentative. We're talking about presenting a reasoned case. And if you look again in 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says, being prepared to make a defense, to present an apologetic to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. That word reason is the Greek word logic. That is, I should have a reasonable explanation for why I believe in Jesus Christ, why I trust the Bible, why I believe the resurrection. Thirdly, our goal is not to show our knowledge. We're not trying to brag here or put on display what we know. Rather, what we're seeking to do is to lead them closer to Christ, lead them closer to salvation. And we're going to use this metaphor throughout of planting seeds. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, when I was doing my work of, of winning people to Christ, starting churches, he said, I planted seeds of the gospel Apollos, an early preacher in the church, came along, watered those seeds, cultivated those seeds with more truth, but God gives the harvest. And this is the wonderful thing. This is one of the most amazing things about this approach. No matter how much time God gives me with a person in conversation, however far I get, if it's two minutes or two hours, all I'm there to do is plant seeds. There's no burden on me to, to get them all the way to make a commitment, sign on a dotted line, pray a prayer. That may happen, but my main goal is to go as far as I can with this person in, in sharing the truth, answering the objections that they have, because it's God's work of salvation. Here's the way we ought to think about evangelism. God is doing a great work in this world to save people, and he invites us to be a part of it. And if you won't be willing to be used, God will bring someone else in that person's life, and you will miss the blessing. If you've ever had a part in someone coming to Christ, you know the joy is incomparable. You haven't, you know, you haven't pulled this person out of poverty. You haven't uh, given them a million dollars. You've given them uh, something that is eternal. You've helped them to find eternal life in Christ. There is a thrill to that that is unlike anything else. And so think of evangelism. Think of reaching people as God's doing work in this person's life. If I'm talking to them, then I'm God's person at this time. I'm going to go as far as I can in this conversation. If we would see it that way, it would take the pressure off of us. What does that mean then? Peter finishes here by saying having a good conscience. We need to lead an authentic life so that our words are backed by our lives, by action. So you can't share the gospel effectively if you're not living the way God wants you to do. If you're addicted to something, you can't tell someone, hey, Jesus can free you from that, you know, puffing away or drinking away or doing whatever. We've got to live a life of, as we'll see in just a moment here, a life of style of repentance and humility. Whereas Christians, we are humble, we're not arrogant, and we are quick to own up to our failings. And don't think that your failings as a Christian is a mark against you as an evangelist. Sometimes it is... The best thing for unbelievers to see you make a mistake, lose your temper, 
and have to say, I'm sorry, I blew it. Will you forgive me? Then they see Christians as real people. And they realize you're not trying to pretend that you're perfect. And that helps you avoid the charge of hypocrisy. See, a clear conscience prevents unbelievers from rejecting the truth of the gospel because of Christian hypocrisy. It ranks right up there when you talk to unbelievers. You know, why don't you believe? Well, because I've known people who said they're a Christian. And I've seen how they lived. And I want no part of that hypocrisy. I first began to learn this approach when I was in my doctoral program about 10 years ago. And in the first semester of learning it, I was taking these doctoral level classes, reading like five, 600 pages a week, having to write these long summary digests. And I was sitting at Starbucks in a town called Lansdale, north of Philadelphia. And I had like three or four hours. And I said, all right, I got to really plug away, get my homework done for the week. And I just started into the reading for that week, and this woman came and sat down next to me. And uh, she went like this. <sighs> and we were sitting rather close. Our knees were almost touching. And uh, I tried to ignore it, and she went, <sighs> <sighs> I thought, she wants to talk. And uh, I started talking to God. I said, God... I have a lot of homework to do here. I'm learning how to share the gospel with people <laughs> and defend my faith. And please make this woman go away. I don't have time for this. <laughs> Honestly, this is what go, was going on in my mind. Ten minutes, I'm fighting with God. Not now, Lord. And finally, I realized the irony of it is God had brought someone to me to, to try this stuff out. And I had just started learning it. So I closed the book and I said, uh, sounds like you're having a, a rough day. Oh, yeah, I'm having a terrible day. I had this procedure done. The insurance company won't cover it. And... I listened for a while, and I said, I'm really sorry to hear that. I'll, I'll pray for you. And her head swiveled around. She said, what are you, some kind of religious nut? I said, no, I'm a Christian. I believe God answers prayer. And then I, I said what we'll talk about tomorrow as I began to ask her questions. I said, what's your religious background? Well, I'm an atheist. I said, oh, interesting. So you don't believe God exists? That's right. Well, actually, I don't know if he exists. I said, oh, you're an agnostic. Yes, that's what I am. Come to think of it, I kind of think God is everywhere and in everything. I said, oh, you're a pantheist. Yes, that's what I am. <laughs> I said, so what led you to become a pantheist? Why do you believe God's everywhere and in everything? And this conversation began, and about 20 minutes into it, this guy came and sat down next to her, and I thought they were together, and he joined the conversation, and he'd been born and raised in a cult, and was also an atheist, wanted nothing to do with God. And at, some, at one point I stopped and said, are you two together? And they looked at each other like, he said, no, I just heard what you're talking about. It sounded really interesting, so I decided to join you. <laughs> and the conversation went on for two hours. And right before the conversation started, I'd been drinking a lot of coffee, and I thought I really should get up and use the bathroom. And uh, at no point in the two hours was I willing to let that conversation die, so I just gutted it out. <laughs> And what happened was I just kept asking questions. I began to correct misunderstandings about the Christian faith. I began calling the bluff when they would begin to say things that simply weren't true. And as I began to challenge their belief system, they began to admit, well, I don't really know why I believe that. Oh, I guess, yeah, I guess that's really a contradiction. Yeah, I guess that doesn't really make sense with what I said before. Everything we're going to learn tomorrow, I began to weave in the truth of the Christian faith. After two hours, actually it was about two hours and 20 minutes, almost two and a half hours, he stood up. He said, I got to go. I didn't even plan to, to stay. He said, but I don't even know what I believe anymore. How do you know anything? In other words, his entire system of unbelief that he was so confident about when he walked in was gone 
all because I was asking questions and challenging all the things we're going to learn tomorrow. I gave him and her both my, my name, my number. I said, uh, do, you have, do you have Bibles? Yeah. I said, would you go? Because as we'll talk about tomorrow, we eventually want to get to Jesus. I always want to get them to Jesus. I don't want to talk about important but peripheral things like, you know, the state of the world and creationism and all those things I believe are good. I wanted to talk about Jesus, who he claimed to be, what he did on the cross. And they were fascinating. They said, we'll, we will go home and read the Gospels. I never heard from them again. That's okay. Because I realized my part to play in, in their salvation, and I, I hope to see them in heaven someday, my part to play was just a short two-hour conversation, which seemed really long at the time. And I can entrust their salvation to God, but I played my part as best as I knew how. And that's all God calls us to do. To work to prepare, to be ready when conversations arise, to boldly confront misconceptions and, and to answer objections and to share the truth of Jesus. And that's all that God calls us to do. And with some people you talk to, you might be the very first person who ever tells them the gospel. Or you might be the last. And there might be people witnessing to them for years. They might have been reading gospel tracts and, and watching preachers on television and encountering you know, billboards and things that say, you know, if you need Jesus, call this number. And you might be the last person, and they're at their wit's end, and you lead them to Christ. And the joy is we get to have a part in their salvation. And I truly believe that if you and I would live this way, day after day, week after week, someday when we get to heaven, we're going to meet people who came to Christ, and they're going to say, you witnessed to me 10 years ago, and I blew you off. But five years later, I remembered what you said, and I was going through a hard time. And I started to think, maybe I ought to go back to church. And through a series of different events, that person comes to Christ, and you had a part in that. Folks, that will be a joy that will be unending for all eternity. And tomorrow we're going to dive into how that happens. All right, we have a few minutes for questions. Any questions whatsoever? I know I just backed the dump truck up and unloaded it on you. Tomorrow we're going to get into the practical of what do these conversations look like. Questions about anything? Did the two-hour two meeting uh, lead to the kidney failure? <laughs> That's a good question because it was about that time, actually, yeah. Come to think of it, that was the year I was diagnosed. I've never made that connection. You ought to be a doctor, Charlie. Yes? Good question. So if you can get someone to read the Bible, I typically want to get them to read the Gospel of John because that's a book where Jesus talks most clearly about who he is and the claims that he makes. So any of the, any of the verses in uh, John where Jesus is on the way, the truth, and the life, or uh, before Abraham was, I am, I want to get them to see two things. Number one, the claims Jesus made about who he is. And then to, to help them realize that when he died on the cross, it was for your sin. So any, anything in the Gospel of John, but you could start even from John 1.1 1, 1 and work from there. But probably the claims where he's saying, I am the way to God. Uh, several verses in John 6, no one comes to the Father but by me. Uh, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Help them to see that Jesus is the only way. It's a good question. 
Other questions? Your minds are so fertile right now, you're not going to be able to sleep tonight. So. Any, any questions that you think of that you say, this is the thing I'm afraid the most that someone will ask me? What's your biggest fear that someone's going to ask you a particular question or raise an objection? This isn't a specific question, but when people start making claims about like general science claims that they really don't know, but you don't know like the, <laughs> the rebuttal, but you're pretty sure that they don't really know, it's just like them just saying, well, science says this. How do you address that? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I've become friends with the uh, co-founder of the Pennsylvania Skeptics Conference. It's actually going on right now this weekend, I think in Philadelphia. And uh, he lives in Lancaster. He started what's called the Lancaster Free Thought Society. And his argument is everything he argues is science. The problem is he has no concept of how science really works. And, and you'll encounter a lot of people who don't know science that well that will make grandiose claims about what science can do. Real scientists are far more reluctant to do that because science is always correcting itself. Science is done by, you know, finite people. Um, science, every scientific discovery has to be interpreted. So real scientists tend to be much more hesitant to roll out the fact that science can answer everything. So if someone is raising a particular issue uh, that I don't know about, I can ask them something like, well, can you send me a link or show me where this is the case? Um, and sometimes you'll find people are just bluffing. Uh, other times I want to point out that, well, you know, everything that scientists discover has to be interpreted. So if a science, scientist sees a chemical reaction, a believer and an unbelieving scientist can both agree on what the chemical reaction is. When we talk about what does that mean in regard to the existence of God or the creation of the world, that's an interpretation. That's not, that's not science. That has to be something imposed upon it. And my question is, on what basis do you argue that this particular scientific discovery argues against God because there are Christian scientists who will look at the same thing and say, no, that speaks of the glory of God in design. So a lot of it is learning to call their bluff. Um, or even sometimes if they're so stuck on science, I'll move away and try to bring up issues of history because sometimes you can't deal with people who have this false notion that science answers everything. It's a great question. Yes? Um, you mentioned uh, reading lots of books on apologetics. Are there books that you would recommend reading uh, written by atheists or agnostic that are particularly helpful in helping us understand the questions, the doubts that we may face in conversation? That's a great question. Um, the problem is really thoughtful atheists are incredibly boring. <laughs> it's the careless ones that are so, Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion. Oh, man, it's a rollicking adventure. And even atheists critique and say, this is terrible science. But uh, so you could read anything by Richard Dawkins. He's the most antagonistic. He's the, probably the most well-known atheist in the world. British scientist, brilliant scientist, but he is straight into anti-Christian philosophy and he doesn't know what he's talking about. So he's entertaining. Christopher Hitchens, who died of cancer a few years ago, was a columnist and essayist, very entertaining. You kind of get an, an insight into how they think, but they're not the most scholarly atheists. And, and, and real atheists are, are, again, much more hesitant to say confidently that God doesn't exist. A perfect example is my friend who runs a Free Thought Society uh, is not afraid to say anything um, completely unsupported because he likes to bluff. 
But recently, another professor and I at LBC met with a philosophy professor from either Millersville or Franklin and Marshall, who doesn't believe in God. This guy was very friendly, very kind. It's like, you know, so I don't believe in God, but I don't want you to think I'm a rabid atheist. I know that I know atheism has huge challenges to face, so I'm really interested to talk to you Christians to find out your belief. And so that's when you know you've encountered someone um, who's more thoughtful. And a good person to read then would be Michael Roos, R-U-S-E. He's very critical of these well-known atheists because he said these guys are, are just making a lot of money and just like to draw attention themselves. But Michael Roos is more thoughtful. That's a good question. But you're going to be disappointed. Uh, as Keith mentioned, I, I went to Oxford University this summer with some students from LBC and about almost 40 students from San Diego State and Millersville and another school in Missouri and, and uh, taught uh, philosophy there. And I had the students read Bertrand Russell, the most famous British atheist from about 100 years ago. And Bertrand Russell's book is called Why I'm Not a Christian. And I had several atheists in the class and they came away saying, this is terrible. This is his best argument. This is really bad. Like I see right through this. The atheists were saying that about that. And so what you'll find is often it's, it's a lot of smokescreen. It's a lot of, you know, you know, when you meet a black bear in the woods, you're supposed to make yourself really big to scare the black bear away. And that's what they're doing is they're trying to make themselves look big. And there's not a lot of arguments there. That's a good one. Time for one more question? Okay. So what do you do? Yeah. Where is this at in the Bible? Oh, I don't know. You know. Okay. Yeah. A uh, couple of things you can do when they ask about the Bible. If they're challenging the Bible and they say, well, I don't believe the Bible, I'll often ask them, have you ever read it? Usually 50% of the time, well, no. Well, maybe you ought to read it before you criticize it. Or if they say yes, um, I'll say, well, you know, show me the contradiction or show me the problem issue. And I've often had people say, well, I don't know. I'm not a Bible scholar. I just heard that there were problems. Okay. You begin to pick that apart. But if they do ask a question you don't know, um, it's okay to say, well, you know, show me where that is in the Bible or tell me and I'll try to find an answer for you. We're going to learn tomorrow about learning to be winsome and encourage the conversation to go on. So it's not just a one-shot thing. And you'll meet sometimes people who only want to do a one-shot, let me get in your face about, you know, why I'm not a Christian and then I don't want to talk to you after that. You can just pray for those people. But if if... If you keep the conversation going and say, that's a great question. I've never thought about that. Can I, can I get an answer and get back to you? And then you run to Pastor Keith or someone else in the, in the church and uh, you ask them, then, then come back. Uh, and I think that's how my mom came to Christ was this woman that she met who had recently become a Christian over a space of several months just began answering her questions. And I'm sure my mom asked her questions she didn't know how to ask or answer. All right, let's close in prayer. I hope you'll come back tomorrow. Tomorrow's where the rubber meets the road. And we're going to talk about practical ways in conversations to plant seeds of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the joy it is to know Christ, to be reconciled to you through Jesus' death and resurrection. And uh, we want to share that with others. Uh, and I pray for each one that's come that you would encourage them that with the scriptures and the indwelling Holy Spirit, that you've given us all we need to prepare ourselves so that we can do this. And I pray that you'd build our confidence in the power of the gospel because it is powerful 
for salvation for anyone who believes. And Lord, use us this month to share the gospel with someone, to plant seeds and build a joy and excitement about it because there's nothing greater. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.